May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. I happen to have a very carefully prepared sermon for this evening, which is sitting at home on my laptop, which you can read tomorrow uh, on the website or maybe a few days later. But I suppose if I actually did carefully prepare the sermon, I should have at least a good enough sense to talk to you about it. And so I will. One of the, the, the sort of the uh, added bonuses, perhaps, is that I will then need to preach more with Bible in hand. And the Bible that sits in the chapel in All Saints is one of these big floppy ones. And so for the first time in my life, I feel like one of those old school TV preachers <laughs> with, the, with the big floppy Bible. So. If you've been here at all over the past couple of weeks, you'll know that uh, the lectionary has taken us through a bit of a, a tour of the Epistle of James. And that last week I, I said that James is very much formed in the wisdom tradition of the Hebrew Scriptures. There's lots of resonance between the book of James and the book of Proverbs, for instance. He's interested in a kind of wisdom that's actually enacted. Not simply talking head smart. He's talking about wisdom as something that you do. And so tonight, as that reading was offered, we heard, first of all, James ask, Who is wise and understanding among you? And then he answers his own question by saying, Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom. Show by your life and in your works that this is, this is rooted in wisdom. And then a little later, he talks about the wisdom from above, which is what he wants to root his people in. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. So when James is talking about wisdom, very much like the book of Proverbs, what he's interested in is enacted or enfleshed, or incarnated wisdom, an act that's simply not of the mind, but of the whole self. Wisdom is of the heart as much as anything else. Occasionally, we will cross the path of somebody who we would characterize as being truly wise. You can think of these people. They may have been formative for you in your life. Uh, you know, a mentor or, or a university professor or perhaps a grandparent, but somebody who walked in their life with that kind of wisdom, whose words you wanted to hear because their life reflected something, because what they had to say to you actually impacted more than just an idea. The thing about, I mean, if you think about those people, somebody you would characterize as wise in that sense, the thing about them is, very often, were you to say to them, wow, you're really wise, they would look surprised. And maybe even say, wise? Oh, no, not me. Not out of false humility, not out of uh, you know, trying to deflect a compliment, but because they kind of honestly would be surprised that that would be the quality you'd recognize so there's, there is a kind of a humility and a, a walking naturally that comes, I think, with wisdom because it is actually lived. 
Now, James contrasts that kind of wisdom which he wants, he aches to see in his community with another thing that he also calls wisdom, but then very quickly shows that it's, it's a bit of a sham. He says, if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth, because that kind of wisdom does not come from above but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. And I love the way that Beth read that word, devilish. It's interesting to me that when James contrasts that which is lived and enfleshed, the wisdom from above with this other thing, he speaks of it as being filled with bitter envy and selfish ambition. Ladder climbing, in a sense, or looking for position, taking a kind of posture that's, that's not built of, of giving, of that humility that we would say characterizes a wise person, but is rather a kind of a striving. And that's what he hates to see in the life of his communities. It's interesting, then, to read that piece of this epistle immediately before the gospel that we heard read aloud tonight, in which what we actually see are the group of disciples kind of working out of what looks like selfish ambition and a little bit of bitter envy. Now it opened, there's three of these stories in Mark, very similar, that open with what's called a passion prediction, where Jesus says to to them, he speaks to them of his impending arrest, his death, and then on the third day that he would rise. But before he talks about resurrected life, he's talking about arrest and death and suffering and loss. And in each of the three instances, the response of the disciples is to say, like Peter did in a lesson a little earlier in the month, no, no, Lord, no, 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 we'll have none of that talk. Or they seem to completely miss it that just sort of skates past them as if they were just lost. Well, it's one of those tonight. So the passion prediction, they're walking down the road, they're, they're moving back towards home base, they're walking. Jesus offers this teaching. The walk continues. They arrive in Capernaum. And his first question to them when they get to the house in Capernaum is, what were you arguing about back there on the road? Because clearly some kind of argument had been going on, kind of behind him, probably in sort of hush whispers, because they, you know, they weren't interested in having their teacher, their rabbi, hear this argument, but they're pretty serious about the argument. When he asks them the question, they're silent. You get a picture that they're either hanging their heads kind of in, in embarrassment, and I hope they are, because their argument is kind of is nuts. They're either hanging their heads in embarrassment or it's it's deer caught in the headlights and like uh oh oh what's going to happen next because the last time there was a passion prediction and peter said no no lord not you jesus called him a satan it, it took him to task shut your mouth peter don't be talking that way so it could be that they're just deer caught in the headlights what's he going to do to us this time silence but he knew He knew what they were talking about. They'd been arguing on the road about which of them was the greatest. 
So he sat down, which in the tradition is the posture of teaching, to, to be seated. And he began to address that, of their argument about who, which of them is the greatest, which is going to be the big boss of the disciples, who is going to be the one... It's a question that gets asked a little later. Who's going to be the one that gets to sit at the right hand when he comes into his kingdom? And he sits and he addresses it. And he addresses it by taking a child who's there in the house. Whose child we don't know. Could be belong to the household where they're staying. Might even be the child of one of the disciples. We don't know. Mark isn't actually interested enough in the child's identity to tell us that. And he sits the child on his lap. Mark also doesn't tell us the child's name or, or if it's a male or a female. Just this child. Almost as if Mark himself is so stunned by the scene, he can't give us more detail than that. You see, we have all kinds of modern assumptions about childhood. We have a highly romanticized view of childhood, in fact. We're convinced at some level... The children are innocent and pure until you have one. <laughs> but, but, there, but there is, in, in our kind of romanticism, is that infants are innocent and pure. And I suppose there's some truth to that. But they're also incredibly self-centered and just really looking to survive, mostly. We have assumptions around needing to protect children and to spoil children. It's grandparents' prerogative to spoil the grandchildren. To shower gifts from Santa at Christmas time and all those things, right? The ancient world had no such picture. Children were essentially unformed, not fully do the rights of a person until they reached adulthood. Essentially, the property of parents. So the fact that Mark doesn't even tell us whether this is a male or a female or give us the child's name reflects his view. I mean, this is this is kind of shocking. Jesus takes this child, places him on him or her on his lap, and says to the disciples, you want to be great? You want to be first in this movement, in this kingdom? I tell you, whoever receives a child like this in my name is receiving me. Whoever's welcoming a child, whoever's giving space to a child, making room in the circle, giving them identity, giving them place, giving them dignity, giving them personhood in that sense, is receiving me. And not just me, but the one who sent me. What he's saying is, when you make room for a child who is among the last and the least and the little, the powerless, the statusless, on the margins... When you make room and give them dignity and personhood, you are in fact encountering the holy. This is about servanthood. This is about recognition of each other in a circle for all of our pains and all of our powerlessness and all of those status differentials, they're gone. You want to be first in this kingdom? Start treating the nobodies like somebodies and you'll meet God. The disciples are speechless. They don't begin to know what to do with that kind of a teaching because they are still assuming in their heart of hearts that they're part of a movement, a political, religious, social movement 
that's going to restore the power of Jerusalem, rid them of the Romans, and mark the beginning again of a new Israel. And that Jesus is the key to that, and they're the inside circle of leaders and generals and military authorities. That's their view. And the fact they're arguing about who's the big shot sounds an awful lot like selfish ambition and bitter envy. The very thing James says are the marks of not the wisdom from above. It's not much of a way, practically speaking, to get anything done. To insist that your key leaders, as their principal act of servanthood, make room for the statusless. Hold up the child who has no identity to speak of in that society to give them place and to welcome them. But in the odd economy that is the reign of God, which places a deep claim on us here tonight, that's actually how the real work gets done. May we, in response to that story and also to the challenge that James launches in his teaching on wisdom, begin to get out of our minds and the struggle to make sense of it all and into a fully enacted way of being faithful in the world, which is the deep wisdom from above. Amen.